Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com What does it take to forge a trailblazing career where you rise to become one of the most powerful government bureaucrats in the country and the first woman to head up the Department of Finance? despite numerous attempts to knock you down. Well, if you're Jane Holton, it takes stubborn grit, self-belief and a rather pragmatic attitude to cracking heads. Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again. Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger. This is episode five of our series looking at new leadership, a style of feminised leadership that we've seen highlighted during the coronavirus crisis in stark contrast to the struggles of the world's strongman leaders. In a moment, I'll introduce you to a woman whose CV will make your head spin, the formidable Jane Holton. But first, I want to take a moment to say thanks to you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast journey. I really hope you're enjoying the series as much as I am enjoying bringing it to you. And like everything I do, it's a joyful learning curve. So thank you for your feedback and please keep it coming. The best way to connect with us on Broad Talk is pull up a virtual chair at our Broad Talk roundtable on Facebook. You can find us there as Broad Talk, all one word. And don't forget to hit subscribe on your favourite pod platform so you don't miss an episode. While you're there, if you're feeling encouraging, please leave a review because that really helps us get word out about this series. Now, the incorrigible Jane Holton. Here's a woman who doesn't shy away from any challenge. In fact, in her own words, she's a sucker for them and she's had a few. But when it comes to leadership success, Jane has proven she's almost bulletproof. 
During her 33 years in the public service, there's little she hasn't copped. She's been screwed over by the so-called merit system and bypassed for promotion when on maternity leave. She's been publicly humiliated in Senate estimates and had her face splashed across TV news bulletins. But she powered on to become the head of the Commonwealth Department of Health and later the first woman to head up the Department of Finance. Right now, Jane is the go-to girl on pandemic policy. She's on the National COVID Coordination Commission. And just days after we recorded this podcast, the Prime Minister asked her to head up a review into Australia's hotel quarantine arrangements. Jane's held numerous international roles, including on the executive board of the World Health Organization and chair of the OECD's Health Committee. She attracted the eye of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation well before the current COVID-19 pandemic when they appointed her chair of CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. As I said, a stunning CV. But in our chat on Broad Talk, I wanted to dig a little into what made Jane Holton the leader she's become. Typical of Broad Talk, we canvass a broad range of subjects. Dads? failure, a lack of formal training, gender inequity in leadership, who leads well and why, and what compassion and empathy have to do with it. Let's go into a little bit of your backstory before we we talk specifically about what you have done and, and leadership, but mm. what made you you? Well, I mean, in common with, with many others, I think the, the experience you have in your youth are really important. And for me, I moved around a lot. So we emigrated twice. And that mean, means in a funny kind of way, you're always an outsider. You're, you're always, you know, if I'm in England, which is where I was born, I'm Australian. Now here, I'm not regarded particularly as, you know, being a foreigner, but in your head, you always slightly are. Because in my case, I arrived here as a teenager. Um, I had had five years in Canada on the way here. So I've got this sort of, I'd say I'm a child of the Commonwealth, which is mm. about true, and I speak a variety of different versions of English <laughs> as a consequence. But do you still think of yourself as an outsider? Oh, I'm surprised to hear that. N- well, po- possibly not, but but I have a, a level of strands in how I see things, I think, which are influenced by those early experiences, by, you know, being raised in Britain by, you know, having that North American experience. And I do, I do find I look at things sometimes not always in the same way that some of my colleagues and friends here do. And now maybe it's not the case that it's a function of those experiences, but I do sometimes think it is partly that. You've held some extraordinary roles and, and, and moved into senior roles and leadership roles pretty quickly, I yeah. think. And I know that your father, mm. um, I think, played a significant role in encouraging you and supporting you. Now, interestingly, when Geraldine Dew, the terrific Australian iconic journalist, uh, wrote a book called The Climb, which was looking at women and power, she makes this point that there is a common theme among all of those she interviewed, uh, uh, women, that they all seem to come from families where fathers really supported them and encouraged them. Do you think that there is something particular about that? Well, I think there is certainly something particular in never being delimited in what you can do. 
And certainly, I mean, it is the case. And I, I mean, I have to say, and I think it's well known that I never thought I would be a public servant. Um, in you fact, didn't, was, even though your father no, no, was no, su- such a prominent no, one. No, absolutely not. And in fact, I, I, in fact, my brother ran away to Melbourne to avoid being a public servant. Can I just ask you there, what did you think you were going to do? Well, I, I actually started work at the university when I graduated and was you know, thinking of doing the PhD. And now I have to say that I decided pretty early on that the academic life probably didn't have enough adrenaline for me, <laughs> if I'm going to be brutally honest. Um, and so I joined the public service thinking I would do that for a while thinking, oh, well, because I was in Canberra. and But it never occurred to me when I joined that I would do a 33-year degree, uh, degree. <laughs> a 33-year year career. It just didn't occur to me. 33 years in the public service is like a degree, though, isn't well, it? Well, it is. It's, it's a degree it's multi- leadership. Mul- multiple degrees, actually. Yeah. So I didn't think of it as being the career that I would have. And I didn't necessarily have a theory about what the alternative was when the academic thing didn't end up being what I decided was right for me. But it was always the case that that essentially people kept offering me interesting things to do and mm. I'm an absolute sucker for something really big, difficult and challenging um, and I just kept wending my way onward and upward. Just on that, I have been uh, reading Madeleine Albright's uh, autobiography, which I'm really enjoying, and she makes the point that uh, she actually says, I was never supposed to be what I became, mm. which I found Fascinating, mm. and because she was a, the child of of immigrants, etc., mm. and born during the uh, the war, and you know, had a not a hard uh, background, but just never thought that she could possibly become, as she did, yes. uh, the US's most powerful woman at, yeah. at one stage. Yes, absolutely. Did you? And you've still got many years ahead, I know, but do you feel that you became what you were supposed to be? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It depends on whether you believe in nature or nurture, let's be honest. So, I mean, I as a, as a younger person, I would never have said to you I was meant to be anything particularly. But I think the older we get, the more we see the traits that we have and, and probably the, the dominance of, of genetics. And I do find myself irritatingly like my father on occasion. <laughs> And you raise the question of, you know, the importance of having fathers. And in my case, parents who basically never put any limits on me. They just wanted me to do what I was interested in and what I had a, a capacity to do. My father actually was one of the very few people who really actively encouraged women and promoted women in his career when it was not the thing to do. And so... I why, mean, he, why did he do that, do you think? Um, he just had a very... I mean, he had a very so- strong sense of equity, actually. He had... You know, he'd had one of those childhoods during the war where, and this was in England, obviously, where, you know, he watched the privations that people went through. And he had, he had interestingly a very, very close friend and female friend. In fact, she was my godmother, my auntie, inverted commas, Jane. And, um, she had, uh, uh, genetically, she, she had a hunchback. And she and her older sister were very, very smart women. And, the older sister went to Cambridge on a scholarship and Jane wasn't allowed to go to university. She had, she was required to stay home and look after her mother and father. Her mother then died and look after her father. And my father always, always thought that was just the worst thing, that she was denied the opportunity, um, basically in this case because of a physical disability, which, of course, 
didn't delimit her in any way, shape mm. or form, but it did socially. Um, and so he had a very strong view that people should be encouraged to take opportunity and should be enabled to do that wherever they could. So that informed his own, obviously, his own encouragement, not just of you, but of the idea that uh, that young women should yes. be pushed forward. Absolutely. And what about your mum? Oh well, my mo- <laughs> my mother was a very stubborn woman. Um, she <laughs> she rubbed off at all, Jane. That <laughs> hasn't rubbed off at all. She she was an unusual woman. So she she had an honours degree in pure mathematics, and she was a computer. For those who know that terminology. And then she worked on the first ever computer as a computer programmer at Bristol University in the 1950s, you know, when they were entire, you know, huge buildings worth. And when we came to Australia, she continued her work. She worked as a research assistant doing, you know, mathematical work and computing work and all the rest of it her, for basically the rest of her working life. So she, I mean, both my parents were mathematicians. So they were both very adept at numbers and I got the lecture at the end of high school with my teachers not knowing what my parents did. Um, I got the lecture about doing mathematics at university, as in I should. Do you know, that's particularly interesting, I think, because you didn't do mathematics no, at didn't. university. And in fact, I think you you um, majored in psychology. Yes, I did. And yet you went on to become the first female head of the Department of Finance mm. and you did not actually have formal qualifications in finance. No. No. Or economics. No. Or mathematics. No. So that, that's pretty bold. But I can add up. <laughs> and, yeah, but and, it's pretty but also, bold. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, 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 was, I was surprised when I, I learned that because, again, I'll just go back to Madeleine Albright, but she, mm. when she took on, when she'd retired as, as State Secretary and she took on the role of uh, or uh, took on a, um, a seat in the, on the board of the New York Stock Exchange, mm. she was very mindful of the fact she didn't have any financial qualifications. And, in fact, she overheard someone mm. on a conference call, she was on the other end, uh, saying, you know, exactly that. Why have we got her? She doesn't have any any mm. uh, credentials, financial credentials. And, of course, as you can imagine, she jumped in and uh, put him straight. But she did. She does write about this in her book that she actually felt like, you know, it was a deficit. It was a, it was a negative for her. Was it a negative for you, though, heading up the Department of Finance with no formal credentials? No. In finance. No, but I, what I think I'd say to you, I mean, to, to start with, you do have to be very numerate. And the thing about a psychology degree is, I mean, if, if you are not very numerate, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to complete that kind of a degree, particularly at the ANU, which is where I did mine. And so, I mean, those skills and the skills of inquiry um, and analysis, which of course come with that kind of degree, I think actually did provide me with a very solid foundation. I'd been in the Department of Finance earlier in my career, so I knew about the budget process and how it worked. And I can still look at a whole sheet of numbers and say, what's wrong with that one? Mm. And usually there is something wrong with it. So, so I mean, again, I, I mean, I sympathise and I empathise with Madeleine Albright's sentiment without having read the book, but as you say it, because I think, you know, you're always conscious that you perhaps don't have the, all the technical skills of some others. But, of course, when you're leading something like a department, you'll bring a whole range of other skills. And mm. if you think about it, I mean, I, I ran the Department of Health for 12 and a half years. I'm not a clinician. 
but I do have a relevant degree as it happens. But I had people working for me who were, you know, medical specialists and they were nurses and they were policy specialists and they were all these other things. And what you learn to do when you're running big departments is you, you learn to employ all of their skills and their talents. So I don't think you always have to be able to do all of their jobs to do that job. Your job is to knit all those things together, being sufficiently inquiring um, and then sometimes sufficiently sceptical. Mm. So so I didn't ever think it was a major disadvantage because I always knew if I needed the technical input, I could get it. But there's a lot to being, for example, the Secretary of Finance, which isn't just about you know the technical elements of finance. I find that very interesting because, as as we know, um, and you and I would know many women who are terrifically capable but won't step up to yeah. take a leadership role or a senior role or executive role until they feel like they're formally qualified. And, and they'll well, say... Well, actually, usually overqualified. Overqualified, yes. Um, but they'll say, oh, no, I can't do that. I'm just going to go and do a master's in that first yes. or I just yep. need to, I just need to, which, of course, drives me nuts. But mm. what you're saying is quite the opposite to that. You didn't feel you needed needed to run out and get a specific degree in health, for example? Well, I mean, I did have a health-related degree, so I didn't feel I did need that. But but also, it, it does go to understanding what it takes to lead in those environments. Yeah. And, I, and I think, I mean, I do, I, I understand the sentiment that people say, well, I'm just not quite ready and I haven't got all the skills. And I mean, one of the things I've pointed out to so many women, and some men actually, over the years, that sometimes it is about looking around you and saying, well, hang on a second, what skills have I got? How do I match up? Well, the answer is I can do just as good a job. And yes, there'll be some things where I will not be as expert, but that's why I surround myself with people who are. And actually listen to them. And take, listen take to their them. advice. Tell me, I, I want to delve into the issue of, of leadership itself, but, but first and foremost, what do we mean when we talk about leadership? What is a leader? <laughs> well, again, I've said this on many occasions. I mean, I think so many people in our communities are leaders. They're leaders inside families. They're leaders in community groups. You know, they're people who can take responsibility, can also acknowledge when they've done things wrong. They can set direction. They can inspire. Sometimes they can harry and harass just slightly if they need to. <laughs> but they can basically um, get a group of people organised in a way that's going to deliver some outcome. So it doesn't matter whether we're talking in the absolute micro. I mean, let's be honest, um, you're leading and organising and managing to get the kids out of bed, fed, mm. breakfasted and into the car every morning. That requires a certain sort of set of organising principles. And I think people dismiss their capabilities, say, well, I'm not a leader. Well, you know, sorry, you know, news bulletin, everyone is a leader. Now, whether you recognise that and whether you practise those skills sometimes on a broader field, which of course, when you're running a big department or even if you're running, if you're, um, you know, running a smaller team of people, you're still leading. You're leading by example. You're leading by encouragement. You're leading by coaching. You're leading by setting direction. And guess what? You're leading by communicating. Mm. I was uh, speaking at a, a forum uh, not so long ago uh, about leadership, among other things, in the public service. Mm. And a young woman came up to me afterwards 
introduced herself and she had a very, very interesting job. Um, she worked in, um, well, basically I think she worked in spooking or spying or something. It was the, a dark, bit, the dark the, arts. The dark arts. But, mm. And she was quite sort of vague about it. But uh, her core job uh, was uh, computer hacking. Mm-hmm. But what the, what was really interesting, she said to me, she feels she's, she's getting a lot of pressure from her um, supervisor and others to step up to leadership roles and said to me, I don't want to do that. I just like what I do. Mm-hmm. I don't, in other words, I, she, and she was only young, but she said, I don't want to go further. Um, and it wasn't about, I want to go off and, you know, do something else or have kids and, and, and be a full time mum. It was just, I don't want to, um, have to take responsibility. I like what I do. Mm. Um, is, is that unusual, do you think? I know many people who very consciously thought through their careers, their work lives, and for all sorts of reasons, personal, psychological, all sorts of reasons, they have decided that they don't want to exercise and take responsibility in the work context other than for themselves. Now, I think we have to respect that. When I'm having those conversations with people, I always like just to delve a little to see whether it's actually a slight fear of failure or, you know, a a real sort of reticence to take a risk because I do think sometimes when people say that it's a nice way of ducking Mm. those those challenges. And let's be honest, it, it does require you sometimes to put your heart in your mouth and you know, leap. <laughs> mm, indeed. Let, let's touch on that. Um, failure. Mm. It, it, failure fascinates me. Mm. It really fascinates me. I don't think, and I've interviewed probably hundreds, well, not hundreds of thousands, but certainly thousands of people throughout my decades as a journalist, and I think the perhaps the most successful have always had stories of failure. Absolutely. Um, do you have stories of failure that actually nearly stopped you? Nearly, nearly had you thinking I'll pull out enough to know? I've never thought I'd pull out. However, all of us fail. And, I mean, I, I, I kind of have a view that if I haven't stuffed up a few times, it means I haven't been trying hard enough. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think if you're always taking the least risk option mm. um, and you never kind of occasionally overreach, you're never actually pushing yourself and, and look, and, I'm, I, and I really do need to be clear about this. I'm not taking um, stupid risks. I'm not taking cavalier, irresponsible risks when I talk about this. I'm saying sometimes either I push myself really hard or, you know, we say, well, let's see how far we can take this issue. Uh, let's find out where the boundary really is. But have you actually experienced a really bad failure? I mean, I know I certainly have where it, it – it, look, let's be honest – it sends you home, you cry, you open the gin bottle and you think, of you know, I have completely, absolutely stuffed up absolutely. here and I don't know how I'm going to lift my head. Have you had that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Occasions on which I've either misjudged things or I have inadvertently trodden on things I didn't see. Do you know what I mean? Where things have not gone as I would have otherwise liked and it's been the culmination of, you know, a couple of years work where it has just literally come to, come to naught. And that is unbelievably frustrating and disappointing. But again, I mean, I think if you don't have those, I think you learn more from your failures to be honest with you than you learn from your successes. Because, I mean, with your successes, do you really understand why it went right? Probably not. 
Um, it just kind of all fell into place. And, oh, isn't that great? And, and there might have been a bit of luck involved. And there might have been a bit of luck involved. Whereas, in fact, if you – and this is my point about pushing um, – if you push and you fail, you think, oh, well, that didn't work. Well, I won't do that again. Mm. And, I, and I do think you learn about yourself. I think you mm. learn about self-regulation. I think you learn about your own style and how it is you communicate and what it is you're trying to do. And is there a consensus or a view that supports that? I think all of that is about honing down your ability to do what you do. And everyone makes mistakes. And you know, that's just life. Well, we all do. And look, as I always say to young women too, that you cannot possibly have a great career without having a roller coaster of, of, of failures along the way. I um, And I'm going to share one of mine because I'm going to ask you to share one of yours. But one of mine, years ago, I was um, very publicly sacked from a, a, mm. a, a, a television show and it was in the newspapers and it was all very embarrassing. And I'm going back a long time ago. But I spent a weekend bawling my eyes out and thinking I'd have to hide for the rest of my life. And my father, who's probably a bit like yours, actually said to me something I'll never forget. It was just a very simple thing. He said, Virginia, no one is going to remember in years to come that you were sacked in this way, but what they will Mm. note is what you do next. Absolutely right. How you get up and what you do next. Mm. And it was such a kick out the bum because it actually made me then go out there and confront it. Mm. Which and I was terrified of doing that, but I, I it was one of the best lessons I've ever had. Mm. You know, it's what you do next and how you respond, how you manage this. Can you um can you share one of your difficult? Phases? Well, the trouble with most of them is they they can't be shared because they're you know they're, <laughs> yeah, you'd say that yeah well because because they're kind of you know probably covered by the official secret act if no. truth be told. I, I will tell you though that I didn't get a particular job I wanted once. And I was so incensed by this and I had applied for this job. And, I, I mean, this is one of those classic stories where – and the, the context is as I was on, on maternity leave. So you're at home looking after this small baby and that's quite a vulnerable time. And I had applied for uh, a role in the senior executive service. So I was in modern parlance, um, an EL2 in the Commonwealth Public Service, which is a director level. So it's just below the senior executive service. And I had applied for this job. I had all of the qualifications. You know, it was a classic case. Every single thing, nailed, nailed, nailed. And I then got this phone call um, from somebody, and this is this is a true story, where this was a very senior man who asked me to withdraw from this process. There's a long backstory to it. Um, it turns out they had already had a process. He had already um, selected two people. Uh, the process had been overturned because of technical errors, and I had inconveniently applied for this role. And clearly, and clearly, he wasn't going to give it to me, even though probably on merit I should get it. And I was absolutely gutted mm. by this experience. And we talked about fathers. I rang my father and said, what do I do? He said, well, it pains me to say it. I think you should withdraw from oh. the process. He said, but have a very long memory. <laughs> I'm surprised your dad said that. But he, I, I, look, I guess he was being strategic about it. He was. Yeah. And mm. essentially the point, that particular point was, um, look, this is wrong, but it, the question of which fight to pick, um, this probably wasn't the fight to pick. 
And we talked about whether this was the fight to pick. But I was absolutely gutted by that experience. I mean, because it actually so disappointed me in what I had, what what you think is meant to be an objective process based on merit, et cetera, et cetera. And I was really gutted by that. And it really made me think very, very hard about some of the gender equity issues that I was confronting. Well, on gender equity and f- female traits and gender traits around leadership, mm. we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But right now we're going to uh, just take a break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. You're listening to Virginia Hausiger, and I'm in conversation with Jane Holton here on Broad Talk. We're having a fascinating discussion about Jane's life and her extraordinary career, but now we're going to move into the issues around leadership and gender traits. Now, Jane, you have some very, very significant roles in our COVID response. You sit on the Prime Minister's COVID-19 Coordination Committee, the National Committee. You're one of only two women um, with the Prime Minister and our Chief Medical Officer. That's 10 people. and uh, Well, not the Chief Medical Officer, actually. So he's not actually on that committee. No, no. So there yeah, we we talked to him though. I you talked to him, okay. But the, with his advice and the prime minister's uh, input, mm. yeah, it's it's predominantly male, yeah, of course, which has been an issue. What we're seeing around the world, though, during this extraordinary time we're living through, is a media fascination mm. with the way women leaders have been significantly, statistically speaking, more successful than male leaders. Now, if we look at the fact that. There are only 18 nations around the world headed or governed by women uh, with heads of government that are women. The others are men. The fact that about seven, possibly eight of those nations governed by women are doing well Mm. in their response to Mm. uh, COVID-19 has got the media fascinated and perplexed somewhat. Are we seeing a new form of leadership here that is, is is proving to be particularly successful because it's different? Well, I mean, I think there's two things to this. Uh, there, firstly, the the question of what it takes to lead at a time of this kind of crisis and what are the, the leadership attributes that we actually are seeing as being most effective. And then the second question, obviously, is are those 
characteristics more commonly seen in women leaders. And I think there probably is, I suspect someone will write a PhD on this. I, I think you could run that hypothesis, actually. Well, what, what are the characteristics well, we're talking so about? So I think, I think that the, the challenge of, with leading with a very major public health event of this kind is, I mean, you do have to be inclined to take decisions and you probably, and you can see this, I think, in the countries that moved fastest, um, they actually got literally an advantage from early mover status. And some of those countries that are doing well, led by women, um, New Zealand, Germany, Germany, Taiwan, Taiwan exactly. Iceland, Finland, yes, Norway. Exactly. So does this mean that women were more inclined to listen carefully to the expert advice and then basically say for an abundance of caution, I think we should move and we should move decisively and early? I think there probably is something in that. The other thing, though, I think, and this is so important, is the thing about any kind of major public health event is communication is so important. Yeah. And and I think we're seeing those challenges around the world that – and I say, I've said this before about Australians, but I think it's not just Australians. I mean, we will all grumble and whinge and have a general old good old carry on if we're told to do something. But if if we understand fully clearly and it's explained to us why we must, we mostly do. Well, yeah, we're pretty obedient that yeah, way. Yeah, we are. We're we? pretty yeah. compliant as a general. But we need we we need to hear what we, we need... believe is is a true, frank, and transparent um, explanation. Yeah, precisely. And, and I think this question of um, and certainly Angela Merkel, Jacinda Ardern, mm. yeah, I can't speak so much for the others, but they, and actually, no, to be fair, the Prime Minister of Norway, they do not suffer from, uh, you know, foot and mouth or garbled communication. They do, I think, speak empathetically. I think they speak with a level of humanity and I think they speak clearly. And I think our challenge with these events, and particularly in the world of social media, where misinformation, conspiracy theories, we could just go on, couldn't mm -hmm. we, um, abound, having something that can cut through that and be largely persuasive is an unbelievable advantage. Well, we've seen it in what I guess, again, the global media sees as or has, has highlighted as being unique. Things like Jacinda Ardern, for example, using Facebook, you know, late at night, yeah. jumping on Facebook and saying, look, I just want to check in with all of you just to see yeah. how you're going. Apparently wearing her tracky decks. She was wearing her tracky decks. I actually watched it. And, and, but at one point, someone sent in a message, people were writing into her and said, oh, you're looking a bit tired. And she said, yeah, I am tired. And then she said, well, actually, it's probably the lighting here is really bad. And then she said, you know, th these curtains aren't very good. I'll move around here. And then she said, oh, have a look at this chair, this old cane chair chair that came with this, you know, house. It's hilarious in, in that she's just so real. It's like watching. Yeah. It was almost for me like having a, a Facebook um, hook up with my sister. Yes. You know, it, it was extraordinary. Not only has she done that, but she's changed the language. Yep. She didn't talk about lockdowns or use war language yes. and threatening language. She talked about self-isolation and home bubbles and things like that. Mm. Similarly, in Norway, the Prime Minister there held a press conference for kids mm. to talk about what, what, what's worrying them and took their questions, you know, can, can we go to a birthday party, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So there have been different ways of communicating yes, exactly. that we certainly do not see from some of the nations, uh, well, led by strongmen. 
strongmen. I mean, we know who they are, the, the, the US and, and Brazil and, and Russia, um, all, interestingly, and the UK to a degree, which have fared badly. Mm. And it's funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, in some of those cases, some of those individuals were seen as masters of social media and mm. masters of communication. But I think the issue here is what is it we're communicating about? Is there a level of empathy and authenticity and actually genuine conviction about some of these challenges. So, I mean, as we would all know, because we're watching it nightly, I think, or every morning, depending on when you consume news or all day, if it's all day, we're seeing a a level of denialism about what's going on in the world and a level of confusion. And I think sometimes that's quite deliberate. Now, I think the thing we're seeing with those women leaders you've talked about, they have faced straight into the risk and the problem that they're confronting. And they are making, uh, I think, a series of decisions about what they believe is best for their country um, and what will both protect health but actually ultimately economic outcomes. So if you take pandemic, for example, I mean, the evidence certainly for from the Spanish flu is that those places that um, actually went into some form of shutdown earlier actually um, had less death and actually came back stronger economically faster than those that didn't. So I think what they've done is they've they've learnt to the extent that it's relevant, the lessons of history, they've confronted very straight on the challenge that they face and they're also confessing when they've made mistakes yeah, which I think is a honest, huge yeah. strength because I think I think in this kind of time a level of um, frankness, including about what we don't know mm. with the public, I think people actually respect that. And the ability to also change uh, direction yeah. and be flexible is is interesting. I think that's been quite dominant among the, that group of women that we've mentioned too. Agreed. And Jane, you're, you're uh, you. You've been sitting on a number of international health um, bodies, organisations and committees for some time. Mm. You're also the chair of of CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. I Mm. mean, how perfect is is that? I mean, I know you're actually involved in a a, literally a a crisis scenario weeks or if not a couple of months before we first heard about this pandemic. How extraordinary was that timing? Yes. Well, I mean, essentially, so CEPI was referred to in a US publication um, a couple of months ago as the hitherto too little known <laughs> CEPI, whereas now everyone's heard of it. Um, so, yes, we've been working on these issues, these viruses that potentially you know, cause these kinds of problems. We were stood up two and a half years ago now. So we had got a tiny weenie march on this, but only, I mean, sadly, we hadn't got as much early start. But as a consequence, yes, we were involved in this right from the very, very beginning. We became aware of it. In fact, I was getting phone calls in December um, about this. I don't want to talk too much about the, the virus no, no. itself and the response to that because we, we'll focus on leadership. But just on this, you, as I said, you do sit on a number of, of boards and committees uh, around the world on health in particular. It, it's very frustrating to learn, though, that 72% of global senior executive roles on health organisations are held by men, mm-hmm. 72%. Now, what's going on there? Well, again, in common with so much we see elsewhere in other sectors in the world, and if you think about it, I mean, medicine, nursing, etc. I mean, certainly medicine is becoming feminised, but nursing in particular has always been a feminised occupation. But when you look at the leadership in many of those occupations, um, the leadership does not reflect what you see um, in the, the rank and file of people who actually 
do the work. And that is, of course, a terrible shame. And you see that um, when it comes to leadership. Now, I'm very fortunate in the board that I lead at CEPI, and this was an absolute requirement for me as we set this up. So we have some fabulous women on our board. Um, we have gender, race, uh, geography, distribution. So I have um, a fabulous woman from West Africa. I have a fabulous woman from South Africa. I have a truly extraordinary woman from Peru. Um, so I have these amazing women on my board. And not all of them, back to your earlier discussion, are doctors. Some of them, um, one of them is an economist. I have statisticians. Mm. I have all sorts on my board. I must admit I went and had a look just to check and it is extraordinarily diverse. Um, yeah. I mean, intersectionality is uh, absolutely clear there. We mentioned before the issue of traits yes. when it comes to leadership. And I want to come back to this, given that we, we were talking about those global leaders, female leaders that have done well um, in, in their response to this pandemic. Do you think think that, that, that leadership traits might be in fact gendered? Can we talk about those sorts of traits such as good communication, such as a, an openness to flexibility, uh, such as good, strong emotional intelligence, a um, interpersonal skills? Are these female traits? Well, I mean, I think, I think that the question we should ask ourselves is are there personality, communication, thinking, et cetera, et cetera, attributes that are themselves gendered. Because I think if they are, obviously women who tend to um, – who have succeeded will bring at least some of those with them when they uh, take to leadership positions. Now, the question then becomes uh, are they more or less successful as a consequence of that, and do do they get advantage from some of those abilities? I mean, my my view, and I'll display my bias, is that a capacity to communicate, to empathise, to genuinely hear what the issues are in an organisation, it doesn't make you any less decisive when you actually need to decide if we're going left or right, but your ability to communicate why or to take input as to which, I think all of those things are actually, I think in modern leadership are very important. And I think what we see is the old-fashioned command control approach to leadership. Now, in a complete crisis, sometimes that can still be an appropriate mechanism. You don't have a lot of time to go out and consult everyone about which way we should go. But I think particularly when you're leading complex organisations, an ability to really have a sense of the whole organisation and, and then, as I've said, I've heard your input, but we're going to do this I think your ability to manage your way through communication, decision making, and actually encouraging the best out of people. But but are women better at that? I think they do it in a different way. Uh, very often now, we should always re recognise there's a spectrum here. Some women behave a lot more like men and some men behave a lot more like women. But I do think the people who can bring that much more can I describe it as balanced mm. approach to how they lead? I think they will pro they will be more likely to be successful. You mentioned a spectrum there, and I find that quite interesting because I often think that we we move up and down a spectrum yes. when it comes to masculinity and femininity. Totally I know right. I do. You, you people who don't know you well, but uh, I know have worked under you, have referred to you as being 
pretty tough mm. and uh, a bit scary. Mm. And it has been reported that you have been in meetings with uh, with uh, men who've been quaking their shoes and you've bellowed, you know, haven't you got any balls? I have never said that. Before. Oh, well, it's been reported. I, I know take it it's back been then. reported. I know damn it's media, been reported. damn media. But look, you know, you, you, you would be aware that you have that reputation among some people of who course. don't know you well. Um, is that you moving up and down the spectrum of femininity, masculinity, or is it is it just you? Well, to start with, I mean, I am very clear about where I'm going and what I'm doing, and I'm very clear in terms of how – I mean, in fact, the people who know me very well would probably tell you that I'm not exactly what my media would tell you I am. <laughs> but I, it is absolutely clear, and I think certainly for women who've been early in um, breaking down barriers, I mean, you don't get there by being a shrinking violet in my experience. And you have to make some conscious choices sometimes about whether you are going to occasionally break an egg or crack a head Mm -hmm. uh, or whether you're just going to sit there simpering and let them roll over the top of you. And I think we all know that particularly some men find that quite difficult. But And yes, you're right. I mean, I've always been goal-focused. I mean, if I'm going to do a job, I want to get an outcome. And I don't do a job just to basically have claimed the title. I always want to get to the end of something I'm doing and say, great team, look what we delivered. Isn't this fantastic? Mm. Interesting there, though, great team. Yeah. You know, you're focusing on the team. Jane, before before we wrap up, I, I just want to ask you the obvious question, I guess. Do you think we are moving towards a new form of leadership, a I do, feminized I, leadership? I, I do think, yes, that there is a change in leadership. I think the old-fashioned command control, bark, bellow, issue orders approach is discredited. And I do think that particularly, I mean, you see now (laughs) groups of men sitting around working out how they can probably lead in a more effective way. And a lot of what they're talking about is what you and I've just been discussing, that some people would describe as feminized leadership capability, um, which I think actually gives most women a head start because they don't actually have to have that conversation about how to empathize or how to communicate. So, So I do think we are seeing a different view. I mean, I'm privileged actually in my current life to work with both female and male leaders. And the best male leaders I work with actually are those men who can practice those skills you and I have just talked about. And they are doing a great job. And a bit like we know that boards with good mix gender composition actually get better commercial outcomes, the numbers are in, guys, guess what? I think it is therefore completely um, provable that the leaders who have that more diverse set of skills are themselves going to be more successful. And certainly, I mean, I can't claim it's statistically <laughs> provable in the, the incidents and the cases that I'm currently working with. But those men who practice their leadership skills in the way I've just described, I find infinitely more authentic and infinitely more convincing. And I see staff responding to them in the same way. Jane, it's been an absolute pleasure to discuss leadership with you in this way. And it's been fun too. Fantastic insights. Thank you so much for your time, particularly during such an incredibly busy time. Complete pleasure. That was Jane Holton, the woman with one of the most impressive CVs I've ever seen and a woman who just never seems to slow down or tire. 
There were some really fascinating insights there about leadership, particularly about how some men may need to emulate the communication styles of women to meet contemporary leadership challenges. What do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can connect with me on Twitter at Virginia underscore house, H-A-U-S-S, or find me on Facebook at Broad Talk, all one word. And join the Broad Talk Roundtable group where you can check in with questions, comments, views, news, anything you'd like to share. There's always a seat for you at the Broad Talk Roundtable. And for some great reads, check out broadagenda.com.au. I hope you enjoyed this chat. Make sure you subscribe to Broad Talk so those new episodes magically appear each Thursday in your pod feed. And if you're feeling warmly disposed, please do leave us a review on whatever platform you use. My thanks to the world's best podcast producer, Martin Pierce, a master whiz. So until next week, Broad Chatters, keep talking. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.